Dear Founder, as you know, there's no blueprint for entrepreneurship. You wear so many hats, you burn the midnight oil, you pour your heart and soul into everything that you do. But without a doubt, the journey is worth every single second that you put into it. I'm Lindsay Pinchuk, host of the Dear Founder podcast. I say this because I've lived it for over a decade. I started my first company with $500 in my pocket and a baby in my belly. I grew it and I sold it all. This podcast is my weekly letter to you. We'll talk all things starting, growing, nurturing, and in some cases, even selling a business. Together with some of my closest contacts, I'm here to help you find your own success, whatever that means to you. The ride as a founder is the ride of your life. So come on in and join me for another episode that will get you one step closer to reaching your own founder goals. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Founder. I'm excited for you to meet today's guest because I've known her for a very long time. Nearly a decade ago, Genevieve Weeks and I sat at the restaurant at the Six Points intersection of Damon North and Milwaukee in Chicago's Bucktown neighborhood. She'd call me to discuss the possibility of scaling her business, and I had recently started hosting events in other cities outside of Chicago for my own business. So now Genevieve was looking at options for expanding the Tutu School into new markets, and she came to me for some advice. Boy, do I wish I could go back and be a fly on the wall in that conversation. Neither of those women had any idea what was in store for them. When this was recorded at the end of 2021, the conversation you're about to hear between me and Genevieve, we, um, there were 60 tutu schools. Today, Genevieve has over 70 tutu schools across the country. Genevieve Custer Weeks was born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. She received her early ballet training there and took part in her first dance productions in the middle of her parents' living room. At the age of 15, Genevieve moved to Chicago to study at the School of Ballet Chicago, and that same year, she became a founding member of the Ballet Chicago Studio Company. In addition, Genevieve supplemented her training with study at the San Francisco Ballet School, American Ballet Theater, and with Suzanne Farrell at the Kennedy Center. A contract with the Oakland Ballet brought Genevieve to San Francisco, to the San Francisco Bay Area, and beginning in 2006, Genevieve began performing as a freelance artist, dancing principal and soloist roles throughout North America, and started dreaming of operating her own boutique school that would celebrate the things she loved the most about ballet. During a break in her performance schedule, Genevieve's husband, Andrew, finally asked, why wait? And Tutu School was born. Since founding that first initial studio, Tutu School has grown into a collection of over 70 boutique ballet schools all across the United States and Canada. And Genevieve, who retired from performing in 2012, now divides her time between Tutu School and her life with Andrew, a photographer, and their three adorable kids. Please come on in and meet my friend, Genevieve Weeks. Genevieve, you are the mom of three boys, and yet here you are, this beautiful, elegant ballerina (laughs) in pink, and you you look on your Instagram and everything's ballet, ballet. Not that boys can't do ballet. That's not what I'm saying, but like you have like some rough and tough boys in your house. At least that's what it comes across as on Instagram. So I would love for you to share with everyone how you got to be like the franchise ballet school across the country because I mean I've known you now I don't know I think probably for eight or nine years and even in that eight or nine year I mean it is just exploded and how many are you at now 
Um, we just signed our 60th. So our 60th location that's open or somewhere in the process of opening. I mean, it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Because yeah, I, no. when you were on the stage dancing, you never probably thought years ago, this is what it would be. No, I, not, I definitely never thought that. And and when you and I met, like I still remember really clearly the first time we met, we were both pregnant. I was pregnant with my twins and you were pregnant with your second. And we hadn't sold a single franchise. We had the two locations that I owned at the time, but we hadn't sold a single franchise. So, and that had to be, those kids are, tur- mine are turning eight, yours just uh-huh. turned eight, right? So that was eight years ago. <laughs> I, I know when we met that time, I very vividly remember part of why we met was because I was expanding into other cities and we had a, a very frank conversation about how I would do that and how you would do that with your business, yeah. my business. So, and here we are, I mean, you've accomplished a lot, you know, yeah, likewise, you too. Can, in a very short time. So how did this happen? Well, yeah, I mean, well, um, I could say that right back to you too, right? A lot's happened. We both did a lot in eight years. Um, yeah. So, I mean, at the time when, when you and I met, I had, I'd started choo school in San Francisco. I'm from the Midwest, but moved to San Francisco um, because I was a professional dancer. So that's where I had my career and was dancing. Um, and the company that brought me out to the Bay Area had unfortunately folded. They ran into financial difficulty. And so I was freelancing. I was doing gig work, which is sometimes something that dancers do. And in between, I started teaching and I just really, I fell in love with teaching pre-ballet and preschool age dancers, which is if you've ever had any experience with that is a special kind of crazy, but also a special kind of magic to be like hurting three-year-olds in a room. Um, And I just really realized it was, you know, it was what I believed in the most about ballet, that what meant the most to me about ballet from the time I was little to the time I was performing professionally was that I got to have space in the world to just move to music and be creative and, and get in touch with something inside of me that I didn't you know, access in any other way. And I realized that's what I was doing for those kids. I was making that space for these kids too. And I just, I wanted to keep doing it. And then I think the entrepreneurial part of my brain that, that was in there that maybe hadn't really been utilized during a my dancing career was also noticing that it was like at these traditional ballet schools, those kids were so neglected. Um, and, and there wasn't anything about traditional dance schools that really catered to that age group. Like the spaces, even the studios were pretty like dingy and kind of big and cavernous and intimidating. The curriculum definitely wasn't tailored to them. The the training for the teachers wasn't suited to them. Um, but those were the classes that were on waiting lists. Like they were full, you know, and they were so neglected. It was like somebody go teach the three-year-olds on a Saturday morning, but they couldn't, they couldn't even, you know, you know, make enough space for them because so there was so much demand. It was still such a milestone moment for so many families and kids to sign up for their first ballet lesson. And so I just really realized, you know, there's such an opportunity here. First of all, this thing that I believe so much in. And then, you know, secondly, that there's obviously a real need. There's this hole in the market. And what if we just had a ballet school that this is all they did, that you, you would just specialize in a magical introduction to ballet. That's it. Full stop. <laughs> and then everything you did when you come at it that way, Every single thing from the the branding of the space to the curriculum, the training for the teachers, all of it can just be geared specifically to a magical introduction to ballet and very young students taking ballet. So we opened the very first one in San Francisco. Um, It'll be 14 years in February and it exploded. It just really did really well quite fast. And then a year and a half later, we opened up a second across the Golden Gate Bridge in Martin County. Also did really well. And that's when I sort of realized, okay, they could be everywhere. And there's no way that I could open them all myself. And so I started thinking about franchising 
took a few years to kind of actually get that all in place and to find our first franchisee. And, and we signed that first franchisee eight years ago, actually this week. And then in that time have grown now to 60 locations. Oh my God. You're like, and then we just grew to 60 locations. Yeah. And then that was it. So it was just, that was all. <laughs> sprinkled our magic ballet dust all over. You know, I want to bring something up that I think is very interesting. So you mentioned how, um, you, you mentioned how the three-year-olds were neglected yet they had the wait list. And what I, what I would think would be very interesting would be to look at those bigger ballet schools who quote, like neglected the three-year-olds every mother wants to sign their daughter up for ballet. And that's why there's a wait list on all at all of these schools. But I wonder what the retention rate was mm-hmm. for those students to actually continue with ballet. Because when you think about it, like so many kids drop out of dance also, you know, they find other interests, they, they do other things. And if you're not like really like curating the experience and like cultivating the experience, I guarantee there's a pretty low retention rate once kids get to be seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's, I mean, that's a big piece of it for me too, is the philosophically, we know that most of the kids that dance with us are not going to become professional dancers, right? That's not why they're there. That's just also, you know, statistically it's, it's a pretty competitive profession, but that's also not what most of them want, but we believe that it's formative and valuable for all of those kids and that having early exposure to music and dance and movement can do, it can unlock all kinds of things for you. And so to me, it's this huge tragedy that a lot of times because programs aren't actually set up for very young students, it really does just turn them off to dance, to the arts, to an experience that could be really formative for them in whatever way it's meant to be in their own life, because it just gets too serious too fast, because schools are maybe just treating it as this like watered down version of advanced ballet classes without actually taking the time to think about what's developmentally appropriate, um, you know, or what's going to really be engaging to very young kids. And so then, you know, not only is that a poor business decision, um, but it just really misses out on what I think the depth of the mission can be for working with kids. So you develop this ballet school, you have a location, now you have 60, I want to reiterate, six years, okay. 60. I know they're not all yours, that they're franchised, but How do you create this experience that is different than these big ballet schools? I mean, obviously you're teaching and really catering to a smaller child, but you know, one, what is different? I I want you to kind of walk us through that process of creating that differentiation point. And then two, what do you do when a child ages out of your experience? And do you have places where you choose to send them? Yeah. Well, so for the, to the last part first, we do always try and establish relationships with other ballet schools in our community. You know, we're always trying to be good neighbors and, and one of the, the nice ways that we can sort of partner with them rather than, you know, uh, compete with them is to let them know, hey, we're just focused on this very specific thing. And we're always looking for great places to graduate our students into when they're ready, if they want to study more seriously, so that, you know, hopefully we can make that a nice transition when it's time. Um, the reality is, you know, a lot of kids do do try ballet and try all kinds of activities between the ages of, you know, sort of two to six is where we really see our sweet spot, maybe even more narrow than that is two to four or five. Um, so a lot of times there's just sort of some natural attrition anyway, but we always do have kids who have been with us since they were toddlers and stick with it to eight. And then we really want to sort of have a graceful transition for them. So we do try and form those partnerships. Um, I think the thing that makes us really different and, and you're right, that's, a, that's just such an important thing. Everyone should think about what, 
what is going to differentiate them. And, and not only because that I think helps you competitively, but because I think that really helps you engage with and connect with your own business. You know, if you really understand on a deep level, why, why am I different? Like, why does it matter that I'm doing this? Um, you know, you have to believe in that. And I think for us, it's a big part of it is that it, it's this really holistic approach, right? Like we didn't just take one thing and say, oh, this really isn't working for young dancers. We took the whole experience and said, you know, what, what is really going to make this a completely tailored head to toe, start to finish program for, um, for very young students that isn't working for them at, at traditional dance schools. Um, so again, that's things like the curriculum. We have a whole ballet story time curriculum that's based on classical ballet stories like Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty and Firebird, where the kids are actually learning the actual classical scores. You know, they're like four and they know who Tchaikovsky is, um, but they're also getting to get up and dance around and be the sugar plum fairy. Um, and so we things like that that are both tie in and, and arts education, but then also a real element of magic. I think that's pretty characteristic of what we do. But then we also really believe that, you know, like no detail is too small. So it's everything from like the paint colors on the wall um, to just the postcard that families pick up at a story time near them that even tells them about us. And then I think really importantly, it's because we're so hyper-focused, we're able to make sure we train teachers um, to really be just really skilled in working with this age level specifically because it's all that we do. So that hyper-focus I think is, is one of the most important things is because we've just picked this one thing and we want to, you know, knock it out of the park. If you like what you're hearing on the Dear Founder podcast, please make sure you take out your phone, scroll down. Yes, please do it now and leave a five-star rating or write a review so that others can benefit from all of the amazing conversations that we're having right here. Every time you leave a rating or write a review, it helps someone else discover Dear Founder and all of the incredible women that we feature here each and every week. Thank you so much for listening. Do your studios, we're going to get into COVID in a few minutes, but do your studios have aside? Let's put COVID aside. Do they have wait lists? Like, I mean, you guys are, are, are you guys still like just so busy that you don't even really need to go out and like find the business? I mean, it really depends on where the studios are in their sort of evolution, but yeah, the established ones get so busy. Although, you know, I mean, obviously with um, the age group being what it is, it also turns over. So you're sort of, you know, continually working to reintroduce yourself. I'm sh- and I'm sure, you know, you always found that too, especially when you're working with like, you know, parents and then parents age out, you need to kind of always make sure that you're, you're nurturing those relationships in the community and that people know who you are so that you're the name that comes up when someone says like, where do we go for ballet lessons? <laughs> you know, then the parent at the playground is like, oh, choo-choo school. That's where you go. <laughs> right. And that's what you want. Like every single person who walks through every door to every one of your studios is a marketer for your brand. Yeah. So how do you make sure we're going to get into the franchise process, but how do you make sure that that happens? You have 60 studios and that means there are, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are out of your control. So how do you make sure that every person that walks through those doors actually does have that magical experience for their child? Yeah, no, I think that it's, it's, it is the, you know, the most important part of my job. And it's something just totally candidly that I probably really underestimated when I started franchising. I think that I kind of thought, I think there's a a perception out there about franchising that maybe it's almost like, 
um, some passive income you're going to set up. Like you, you know, you create the package and then you sell it to people and then they send you royalties. <laughs> when of course, in actual reality, you are, you know, having to, to really make sure that you're constantly evolving, um, both in terms of the support you're providing them, but the ways in which you are, you know, sort of layering in checks and balances to make sure that there's real brand consistency and quality control. And it's daunting because, you know, as any founder knows, your brand is your baby. If you believe enough in this to want to scale it in this way, you also care deeply about it. And it's kind of terrifying to think that somebody on the, you know, other side of the country could be providing an experience that's not at all what you'd envisioned or believe in. Um, so for us, it, it, the answer has really just been that we're continually creating new tools, you know, whether it's like different guides or programs or making sure that we're keeping the ownership community really connected and doing trainings, um, you know, explaining to them all the time why we do things the way we do, how it connects back to our mission, why it's important for them and the success of their business. Um, we, we just really leaned into support. So I think we provide support for our owners at a much deeper level than I ever anticipated when I first got into this, but that I now think is, is just like, you know, absolutely non-negotiable if you're going to make sure that things are happening in the way you want them to at a bunch of different locations. And especially with this audience, I, I, I mean, that it's, it is very important for any franchise to support their franchisees. And that is a blanket statement that I, I know you would agree with. But when you're dealing with parents and children, that really takes it to a whole new level and you need to make sure that your reputation stays intact and you are trusting 60 other people with, to your point, your baby, your brand, the one that you built, and you do not want to see that tarnished in any stretch of the imagination. No, exactly. Exactly. You're so right. I mean, I think any, and you know this, I'll do well. Like anytime you bring in anything that has to do with kids, it's a whole nother level. Um, so yeah, it's so important. It makes it even more important when we think about the owners that we, you know, partner with and we think about training them to hire the best possible teachers to work with kids at their locations. I think it does just raise the stakes at every single one of those decisions. So, okay. We, you and I met eight, eight years ago now, maybe a little more. And we sat down. I had a couple of, um, I never franchised Bump Club, but I did have a couple of, of, they were part-time employees, I suppose, or contractors at one point. And then they became part-time employees in other parts of the country that were, um, you know, spreading our mission and using our curriculum and helping us to grow our brand. And we really created a brand ambassador experience. And I know when we sat down, we had a long conversation about, okay, so like, how do you, how do you, how do you do this? (laughs) How are you going to do this? And that was initially why we first met. So I would love for you to walk us through the process of how you actually did do it, how that first franchise came to be, how it led to 60 more, and kind of what was that pivotal key moment that you realized that this was the way for you to grow and scale your brand? Yeah, no, I I think it's funny to think back to that conversation because like I would love to to remember exactly what I thought I knew at the time, given that I probably knew so little. But I think what we were kind of in the middle of was actually exactly what you should do when you're you're looking to do this. I mean, I think you first have to um, test out 
in, in, in a couple of ways on your own before you ever try and hand over sort of the package to somebody else and say, here's everything you need to run this business. So I think similar to how at the time I know you were, you know, going into different markets, that's, that's what we did with at least our second location too. And we really used that opportunity with the second location to say, okay, it, you know, now that we're setting up another school, how, what do we need to do that? You know, what, how do we replicate it? What systems can we put in place? And I think that would be my number one piece of advice for really any business owner. Cause I think there's literally no downside to it is to set up your business from the beginning, like you are going to scale it, you know, because I just think that again, there's literally no downside. And if you, um, you know, if you look at every single thing from the smallest to the largest, like, okay, what, what, how would I train somebody else to do this? What system do I need to put in place? What process, you know, what does my operations manual look like? You know, how does this work at scale? How does this work if I'm not there to do it? That's only going to make your initial location all the stronger, even if you don't scale it or sell it. Right. So I just, that's what kind of my number one piece of advice now to people is like, build out your business from the beginning. Like you're going to do that. And I, I wish we'd done that, but we didn't. So we figured a lot of that out with the second, you know, so with the second location, we really tried to figure out what, what sort of the recipe was for, um, setting up a choo-choo school. Um, and then, you know, it took a really long time to find the right first owner. And it felt like there was so much pressure on doing that because it had to be the right person. They were going to set the tone for the, the whole organization really, and all the owners to come. And we really lucked out with the first person we found was also in the Bay Area. So our first, you know, our first two corporate locations that I owned were in the Bay Area. And then our first franchise location was in the Bay Area too. So it meant that we could really kind of all work together and figure out a lot together. And so I, I actually, I'd say it was really important who the first two owners were. And, and the, the, the second owner was also in the Bay Area. We worked through a lot together. And now those two owners, they each own seven locations. <laughs> so they oh really God. like... Yeah, they've grown. They've grown with us too. Um, but I think I, I truthfully don't know if I would have had the idea that this was how I was going to scale my business if my one of my very best friends had very successfully franchised her business that was a, a bridesmaid's dress boutique called um, Bella Bridesmaid. She sent sold it. Um, but because I'd seen her do that. I, it gave me the idea that, oh, this is a way I could scale. Otherwise, I think I probably would have just continued to try and open them myself and would have eventually hit a wall. Um, but that was the first thing that really let, led me to look into it. And once I started looking at franchising, and, and now I'm always encouraging you know, women who are looking to scale their companies to look into that, is I, I loved the idea that I didn't need to take outside investment. Um, I was really going to be taking on partners that the owners, the franchisees become, they become your investors, right? And then you're growing the business together um, and that they, they have a day-to-day a -day stake in it, right? And a really realistic view that maybe, you know, outside funding wouldn't take otherwise of, of this, this concept that I was trying to grow. And so once I really wrapped my brain around that, then it was like a no-brainer, you know, that I, I knew I couldn't do it all on my own, but I was also really wary of taking outside funding. And the idea of sort of taking funding from the inside out by taking on these partners that would actually be owners, um, that just seemed like such a great, a great way to do it instead. I want to just, I want to dial it down for people who are listening, who might not understand how a franchise works. Um, I, can you explain how, just the basics of how it works? Like a franchisee pays a certain amount and in return, they get X, Y, and right. Z. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. So they, in return, you know, for their franchise fee, they buy the business. So they would, in my case, they would buy a choo-choo school. And for that franchise fee and for buying the choo-choo school, you know, that means they're getting everything from here's the curriculum, here's your training in operations, here's how you train your teachers so they can train the class, teach the classes, you know, and we also have initial 
training for those teachers. Here's everything from the Pantone colors on the wall and your setup guidelines for your studio, for your decor guide, you know, all of the templates and the files you need. Here's your software, your website, the business, you know, there, I can go on, but basically you're getting the business. And then you pay a monthly um, royalty as well that's based on the, the revenue that you bring in. So it really varies from franchise system to franchise system. But the way we do it is that it is just a, a straight percentage. So it's, it's only based on the money you actually earn. Some franchise systems also have like a minimum or some sort of flat fee. We don't do any of that. So it's really just based on the revenue you actually bring in. And then those monthly royalties um, get paid and some of them go back into you know, additional services that the franchise will provide to you too. So it really is a very sort of interconnected um, and dependent in a good way relationship, right? Like Tutu School Franchises only thrives in a successful to the degree to which our owners are too. So we're all really connected and, and kind of have to be committed to making it work for everyone. And to your point from a corporate standpoint, it was so smart that you did this because to your point, you did not have to get outside funding. You you were able to scale and grow. And now you have one of, you know, the largest names in childhood education, early childhood education across the country, which is crazy. And I'm so proud of you because like, just to think of like where we both were when we first met, <laughs> right? and, you know, what is your, what does your team look like now? Not the franchisees, but like, what is your Quote, corporate team look like and how do they impact your day to day? Yeah, no. So we're still, we're still pretty scrappy. We're, we're a small team. So um, we're about four of us in the corporate office. And then we also have a, a team of school coordinators who run those, those, it's now three corporate locations that we have. And even though those corporate locations, you know, would kind of, they fall into the, they're the studios that we own and operate can fall into the, the category of more being like franchisees it feels really important that we still have them. I think we figure out so much about what works and what doesn't by operating those schools. And I, that was never more true than during the pandemic. Like, I, I don't know that I would have been able to look the other owners in the eye if we weren't also trying to keep three schools going and, and take care of our families through those schools. And, and equally as importantly, I think it's also that then we have a direct connection to our families and like the students that we serve through those schools. So all told, you know, then obviously those schools have their own faculties and things like that too, but are a real corporate team are the, the couple of school coordinators that run the corporate locations. And then again, about four of us in the corporate office. And then because we're still, you know, we're trying to be lean while we grow, but be smart about what we grow. We've done a lot of, um, you know, outsourcing. So we'll contract different things like um, social media management. Um, we have like basically a, a contract CFO, um, a contract CTO, you know, and so we try and as much as possible, really make them a part of our corporate team. So it doesn't just feel, you know, like everyone's independent contractors and, and more like we're working in an integrated way, but without taking on, um, at this point anyway, as much of the, the overhead burden. Which I think is so smart from, and I think it's important for any business owner to hear this because so many women, especially start businesses and they say to themselves, oh, well, I don't have the funding. I can't hire this person. I don't know what to do. And they just try to do it themselves. And um, you know that, and I know that, and you and I both also know that the only way to grow is by entrusting various tasks to other people who can do it better than you. And I think that now even before the pandemic, because when I sold Bump Club, I had a contract um, CFO as well. And that made all the difference in the world to me. It helped me with my sale. I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. 
But to your point, like you don't need to have a full-time CFO or a full-time CMO or in, but you can bring in talent, especially from women who have left the workforce and want to come back. And there's so many different ways of working right now that, right. You can bring in people to help do things that you can't do or that you need help and not necessarily pay a full-time executive salary. A hundred percent. And, you know, and, and also kind of along the same lines, like we're doing a lot more of already like looking at who's already in our community and on our team that we can tap and maybe like elevate, maybe give some extra work and extra hours and extra projects to a new title even. Um, but without having to create necessarily a whole new role. So like, for example, we're really, you know, as we're continuing to grow, it's becoming a much heftier lift to make sure that we're keeping our curriculum up to the standards that we want it to. And that we're always providing that support. Well, we happen to have this amazing community of incredible teachers and a lot of them with, you know, veteran teachers with years and years of experience, some of them with degrees in child psychology and education, you know, and so um, while we're still working on building out, you know, what, what eventually will probably be more of like a curriculum department, you know, doesn't it make a ton of sense to, to tap them and, uh, you know, again, give them, you know, maybe a, a title. One of our, our veteran teachers just became a master teacher for the entire franchise system. And now she has a special focus in training and auditing locations and working on curriculum development. And that was someone who's just right under our nose. So I think yeah. sometimes, you, you know, you get caught up in thinking like, oh, it has to be when I'm ready to add a department with five desks. <laughs> it's like, no, you know, that we can be scrappy and creative too. Today's episode is brought to you by Hivecast, an amazing agency providing high quality podcast production made simple and affordable. I hit the jackpot when I came across Hivecast as I pieced together services from contractors all over the web initially to help me with my podcast. Hivecast was everything that I needed all in one place. For just $500 per month, they not only produce and edit four episodes, but they also create the marketing assets. Emma, my account manager, is amazing, making sure that I'm on task and that we can schedule episodes regularly and by my deadlines. Honestly, the time saved working with Hivecast is worth at least triple what I'm paying. Their sister company, Fireside, offers other marketing services for small businesses, including social media management, Facebook and Instagram ads, search engine marketing, and so much more. Again, all at a rate palatable by a small business owner. The best part, there's no contract. You can purchase their services as needed on a monthly basis. Use the code FOUNDHER and save 50% off your first month of services. Give them a try. The decision to outsource this part of my business has surely saved me a ton in the long run, and it was the best decision I've made for my business. And that's an example of utilizing your resources and yep. knowing who, knowing your people, which is so important as well. It's so important and imperative to know who is on your team and what their skill set is outside of their quote core job. Because to your point, you have these teachers, and those teachers may have gone through various career changes, or you know, they're a ballet teacher now because of X, Y, and Z, or maybe you know, they had kids and they didn't want to teach full time, but they want to teach part time ballet with you. I mean, there's so many different scenarios, right? So it's so important to know your team and know your staff from everyone from the people at the top all the way down to the people who are part time hourly workers. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So I want to give you the opportunity to share if Jane Doe comes and wants to be a franchise owner. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the process and what they get. 
but what is like, what is the time frame, and how, how long does it take for them to, you know, to get a studio up and running and then turning a profit? What, I mean, and I know every friend, every franchise is different. I know every location is different, but um, I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of share for anyone listening who thinks like, oh my God, this could be a really great option for me to be my own boss and own a business, but have the backing of an amazing company like Tutu School. Yeah, no, I, it's a great question. I think, you know, we typically see like by, from the time that someone signs a franchise agreement to then opens, it's often about four to six months. We have people do it in less. We have people who take a lot more. There's been kind of a backlog of openings. We still have lots of schools opening right now that had, you know, signed at some point during or before the pandemic. So that's obviously stretched things out a little bit, but usually it can be as, as little as four to six months to, to get open. Um, and, and I think, you know, the thing that really attracts people to franchising and the thing that I probably was not as aware of as I, I am now, um, things that have actually caught me by surprise are, you know, you grow exponentially because you have this brand, you, you know, you're not creating your brand. That's obviously so much of the work of what people have to do when they're starting a business is to create the brand, define it, and then figure out how to communicate it. And that's already been done for you. But then you get to to pick an, uh, kind of where you want to play as an entrepreneur. So we really are looking for people who feel entrepreneurial, who want to own their own businesses. They just don't want to do it on their own. And I think that's such a beautiful balance because, um, you know, as somebody who feels very entrepreneurial, myself, I also know that it can get really lonely. You know that certainly. And so to do it in a way where it's very much your own business, this is yours and this is your entrepreneurial journey and adventure, but you're a part of a community or part of a whole community of owners that lean on each other, that support each other, that work to grow together, that partner um, together, and that you're also then a part of um, you know, a brand and a mission that's already been defined and is already strong, but is always growing and evolving, um, you know, as we go forward. I think that just feels really exciting to people because it really is a pretty um, tricky balance to strike otherwise. Do you find that most franchisees come to you or do you have to go out and find them? Like, do you do any marketing to grow and scale this business in that regard? You know, we don't right now. We've tried a few different things. And honestly, we haven't like, you know, we haven't found one avenue of recruiting franchisees that we feel like, oh, this is so great. We're going to, you know, run with this. And and so most of our growth has been really organic. I think as we continue to kind of try and, and grow and reach the next tier, we're going to keep ex experimenting with what works. But, you know, it's sort of interesting is, we're not a typical franchise, you know, and one of the reasons why I'm sort of a little bit of an evangelist for franchising for women who are looking to scale their companies is because any business can be a franchise, you know, it depends on whether or not it's the right, you know, fit for you. But traditionally people think of it as things like French fries, you know, and Jamba juice. And like, so I think that, um, that the, we have an advantage in that we're unique in the franchising space. There isn't a lot out there that, that that's like us, but it also means that some of the traditional avenues for finding franchise, you know, franchise owners don't really work for us because those aren't, those aren't really our people. Um, so what, what's really happened so far is it's been really organic people who find out about us. We've had a lot of, you know, past teacher school families who maybe move and then they end up in a market where, you know, Phoenix or Salt Lake city and discover there's no teacher school there. I was just talking to somebody who moved to Portland and we don't yet have a teacher school there. Um, we've had people who, who have found us, you know, through, through some limited marketing. And then one of the things I really love is a lot of our growth has come from existing owners wanting to open more. So I mentioned the, the first two owners, yeah. seven, we have other owners that have anywhere from two to five locations. Um, so even though we have 60 locations that are signed or opening, our owner community is actually half that. 
um, just because so many owners have multiple locations. And so that's um, been a really great way to grow because it means even though we're growing quickly, we still feel like a very tight knit, you know, closely connected group. Well, and that's amazing also. And another testament to your business and your model and your franchise, because if people want more, clearly you're doing something right, which is awesome. No, I do love that. It makes, it, I think it is kind of the best sort of testimonial is that if once they have one, they seem to always want to have more, which I love. <laughs> what do your boys think of all this? You know, it's interesting. I'm the, so I'm the child of an entrepreneur. My mom um, had her, has still, she's still working. I want her to retire, but I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. Um, she's a financial planner. And so I grew up watching her with her own firm and um, was just very aware of the fact that it was like, you know, the family business and, and that that was a big part of um, sort of her fire and what lit her up and what motivated her. And I, I, I think my, my kids get that too. Um, my husband's a photographer, so we're a family of two entrepreneurs, which can be a little bit daunting. Um, but, um, they, they're really aware of that. Like they really know those are the two family businesses. And I think they take a lot of pride in it. I've tried to be really intentional too, you know, especially now that things like travel have been resuming for work about, you know, saying, even when I'm telling them I'm going to miss them and, you know, it's hard for me to be away from them, making it clear that I really love what I do and talking to them a little bit about what I'm going to do. So I'll say things like, you know, I know it's really hard that I'm going to be away and I'm going to miss you while I'm away, but I'm so excited because I'm actually going to visit this new choo-choo school and, you know, here's the city I'm going to, and, and here's, you know, here's what's in that city. And, and here's what I'm going to be doing when I go visit this new school um, and kind of just trying to talk to them about it so that they feel involved and engaged and, and like they have a stake in it and investment. And sometimes they'll surprise me. Sometimes, you know, out of the blue, they'll come and ask me questions about the business and things they've been thinking about and, and want to know more about. Well, and also this time I know has given you as a family a lot of extra time together and you guys have traveled a ton and it's been amazing to watch your adventures, which I'm sure you relish in that as well, given yeah. the fact that I know you travel a lot outside of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we um, have a cabin, a family cabin up in Door County that was just sort of like our happy place and our retreat during the, um, the pandemic and we just go up there with the kids as much as possible and and we take a big road trip every summer. So we're always, we're always taking adventures with them. I'm actually, they're coming with me this weekend. We have um, a new location in New York that I'm going to visit. We have um, one in Brooklyn already, one that just opened on Long Island. And then a second one's opening up in Brooklyn. And our first Manhattan location is on the way too. So I'm going out to look at some of the spaces and visit one of the new locations. And my husband has a shootout there. And, you know, we were like, you know what? we got, we got those first shots in the little ones and, um, you know, and we've been away from them a lot and we're just going to go have, we're going to go have a family adventure. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. It'll be, you know, I was like, I was texting the broker cause I need to go view one of the, uh, Manhattan spaces. And I was like, so I will have three kids with me, <laughs> but you know what? I think it's fun. And I'll, I said, I'll, I'll That's you. I'm going to ask for their, yeah, exactly. It's, I'm going to ask for their right. opinion on this space. Yeah. I'm going to ask for their opinion on this space. And Andrew, my husband was saying, he was like, all right, we'll just, be ready for <laughs> whatever anything they want to share. Yeah. Right. So I want to be conscious of your time. And so I have, I do have one more question. It's kind of a two-parter. Um, I want you to, I would love for you to give some advice to one, anyone who's listening, who may want to do something for themselves and kind of take that leap into owning their own business. And then the second part of the question is, I would like for you to share three steps with that someone who wants to scale their business should think about before they okay. do it. 
I like that. I like both of those. I think someone who's thinking about owning their own business, if, if they're looking at a franchise, I think that what they should ask themselves is, do I feel like I could do this on my own? And, and the, the answer I think they should have might surprise you. I think they need to 100% say, yes, <laughs> I could. <laughs> I could do this on my own, but I just believe that it's going to be exponentially better because I believe in this brand, I believe in this mission, and I want that level of support that's going to help me grow faster and deeper and bigger than I could on my own. And, and because I know it's going to be less lonely. Um, but I think one of the mistakes maybe sometimes people make when they're considering a franchise is um, they they don't think they could do it on their own. And I think it, instead you actually, again, you know, I know at Tutu School, we really look for entrepreneurs. We just look for entrepreneurs who want to be a part of community and who believe in us and and want the kind of support we can provide. So I think that's, that's sort of the first thing I would say about that. And then three steps for scaling your business then I mean the number one I think is again from the beginning or if you if you're already in business from the earliest opportunity you have look at the whole thing from the perspective of how would I how would I approach each and every decision as if this is I'm going to scale this and so meaning you know because to your earlier point you can't do it all yourself um, and so how are you going to communicate to somebody else what systems and processes are you going to put in place um, what kinds of decisions are you going to make with that lens of what if I was growing this business what if I was trying to communicate to somebody else um, you know how how to do it and then I think another really important thing would be that that you have to look at the entire picture. Like you, I really do believe in this holistic approach to a brand that it can't just be the things that come off as big. It has to be the details. Um, you know, and I think that the strongest brands are the ones that take that holistic approach where their, their branding is incredibly consistent and incredibly thorough. And you can see it at every level of the business. And so I think sometimes when people are just focusing on scaling, they forget those details and they forget those layers. And I think if you don't have a really strong brand that, that does, you know, just feel like from head to toe, it, you you know that 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 brand is just oozing out of out of the business, right? Like you just you can soak it up, you get a sense of it the second you walk through the door, or you pick up a piece of collateral, or you see an ad, or you hear somebody talking about it. You know what that business is because their brand has so much strength. I think you want to start that from the earliest possible point too, and and make sure it's all encompassing. And then I think the last thing, the third thing, is just to to set out towards something. So I think sometimes we make the mistake and I'll still fall into this trap of thinking like, I need to have a three to five year strategic plan and to know exactly what I'm going to do. And don't get me wrong, three to five year strategic plan plans are important. <laughs> We're working on ours. But I think that truly all of the great growth that, that's happened to Juju School, um, New York would be a great example, has happened because we've just set out towards it. Even when we didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, we said, I think that's our next market. Like that's a really important market for us. I, I, we want to be in New York City. I said, I want to be in New York City. And um, the story I tell our owners is, you know, once we decided that and I, I didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, I was out there one, I, it was September before the pandemic actually. And I was out there just walking around Brooklyn, looking in different neighborhoods, being like, should we be here? Should we be there? And I kept saying the whole time, I was like, this is probably ridiculous because I haven't even figured out like what owner we would grow with. I don't even have, you know, I don't have the next steps lined out. I don't have a timeline. What am I doing just walking around Brooklyn? But honestly, looking back, that was what set everything in motion. From there on, things started falling into place. And now here we are, you know, not that long later um, with 
with all of these locations that are opening up out there. And if I hadn't sort of been willing just to, to say, I'm just going to go with it. Like I'm just, I have, I'm going to, I'm going to just sort of set out towards something knowing it's going to lead us somewhere good, even if it's not exactly where, where I'm imagining right now, you know, then none of it would have happened. And yes, there were, um, we did end up having our first, very first New York City location was slated to open March of 2020. So you can imagine that there was a little hiccup there. Um, but, you know, look where we are now. We're, we're, we're growing in a big way out there. And again, it just, it all started by just setting out towards something. Genevieve Weeks, thank you so much for your time and your candidness and for all of this amazing, juicy advice, because I mean, I wish I could go back to being a fly on a wall in our initial conversation when you were, Me like, too. you know, when you were, when you were saying, well, how do I, how do I scale? What should I do? I don't know if I should franchise. And here you are, you know, eight years later, 60 locations and growing. And I have no doubt in my mind that we will see that number 100 very soon. I'm so proud of you. It's an honor to know you. And I just want to thank you so much for all of your support throughout all these years. And now as I embark on this new journey, um, I so appreciate you being here. Oh, well, right back at you. It's a huge honor to know you. I love, I love that idea. I'm a huge, I always love being like, what if we could go back and say this? And so I would love to go back and tell those two women, like, you have no idea, but I'm just such a huge fan of what you're doing. I love, I love this next step for you. And yeah, please, you know, count me in for the ride. I'm, I'm excited. Thank you so much. How amazing is Genevieve? I am so happy that I was able to share her story with all of you. As always, there were so many takeaways from today's conversation, and I'll be sending them out to my entire email list, so you're going to want to make sure that you subscribe. You can click the link in the show notes. When you do, you also get a lesson every single week to help you grow your business. But for now, here are my top five takeaways from today's conversation. Number one, pick one thing and knock it out of the park. Tutu Schools is for young ballerinas, and they focus on a curriculum that does well for a demographic that is underserved in larger studios. Number two, Franchising your business is not passive income. You have to really make sure you're constantly evolving in terms of the support you provide as well as brand consistency and quality control for your franchisees. Number three, if you're looking to own a franchise, first ask yourself, is this something I can do on my own? You have to say yes to this question. Yes, but you would like for the community and the support and the support that a franchise provides. Number four, from the beginning, look at your business from the perspective of how will I scale this? What are your systems and processes that you will put into place to make that happen? Number five, look at the entire picture. You have to look at the details. The strongest brands are the ones that take a holistic approach. You can see it at every level of the business. Again, make sure you subscribe to my email list and you'll get some more takeaways sent straight to your inbox. If you like what you're hearing, on the podcast, please make sure that you take out your phone, scroll all the way down and click that five-star rating or leave a review. When you do this, it makes it so much easier for others to find us and the amazing women that we feature right here. Please make sure you also subscribe to Dear Found Her wherever it is that you podcast so that you never miss an episode. If you know someone who wants to start their own business, please text them this episode or put it on your Instagram stories and tag me. I'll make sure to share some of those to say thank you. Stay tuned for another episode of Dear Founder coming your way every Tuesday and Thursday. 